Good morning, Cornerstone. whole creation is groaning even until now, eagerly awaiting for the sons and daughters of God to be disclosed. And mankind is groaning even until now groaning under the burden and under the weight of the slavery of the sin that has stained our bodies, dominated our wills, perverted our morals. And we, the sons and the daughters of God, are also groaning, even until now as we wait for our formal and final induction into the kingdom of our God. First John chapter three and verse two assures us that right now we are the children of God. Right now, this very moment, we are the children of God. But John says this, it has not yet appeared what we will be. It has not yet appeared what we will become. We cannot fathom it. We cannot imagine it. Our eyes have not seen and our ears have not heard. And all we know, as John points out to us, is that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. But until then, brothers and sisters, we groan. It is a groan that we cannot put into words. The human vocabulary cannot encompass all that God has in store for the children of God. The human intellect cannot embrace the wonder of the glory that awaits the children of God. The joy we hope to experience when we finally see Jesus Christ face to face is a joy that is unspeakable and yet full of glory. And so last week Paul taught us that when we cannot find the words to express this deep desire, he says that the Holy Spirit speaks to God on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And because the Holy Spirit knows our hearts as well as the heart of our God, the Holy Spirit is able to make our requests known to God. Now when you and I pray, we have faith that God hears us. And we believe that if our prayers align with God's will, that God will also answer us and give us the thing that we desire of him, we believe that. But the truth is that prayer for the believer, prayer for the believer is often a hit or miss proposition. 
Sometimes we pray according to the will of God, but sometimes we pray according to our own wills. And such prayers go unanswered by God. But, but if the Holy Spirit prays for us, we know that the prayers of the Holy Spirit are heard by God because the Holy Spirit himself is very God. He is God. So that the prayer of the Holy Spirit is not merely a request. It is a requirement. It is a decree. The prayer of the Holy Spirit is prophetic in nature. His prayer calls things forth, calls things to be that are not yet. The prayer of the Holy Spirit is prophetic. And as a side note to that, our prayers are also supposed to be prophetic prayer. When we pray according to the Spirit of God, our prayers are not merely requests, they are in fact commands. John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in Christ. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. But the key to prayer is that we ask according to his will. That's how we know our prayers will be successful because God has already willed the very thing that we're praying for, the very thing that we're praying about. And the effectiveness of our prayer is a foregone conclusion. We can be assured that what we have spoken into the ears of God will surely come to pass. Because all that we have spoken into the ears of God are the things that were already on the heart of God. We pray the will of the eternal God through these lips of clay. While we get it right every once in a while, the Holy Spirit prays according to the will of God at all times. The Holy Spirit himself is God and what he requests, he also requires. And because of this, because of this today, Paul says in verse 28 that we know, we are assured and we are certain. There is no question in our minds, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Very popular scripture. And you know, one of the greatest temptations of being a pastor is that sometimes in our zeal to comfort and to heal people, sometimes we're prone to treat Bible verses like therapy, like therapeutic remedies, removing them from their context and refashioning the scripture to shoot the, suit the various needs of those to whom we've been sent. I think I have heard and I have seen this scripture used in that context more times than I can remember. I went to a hospital once to visit with a woman. She belonged to a church I was attending at the time and she had been diagnosed with cancer some years before. But after therapy, the cancer went into remission. But now the cancer had returned and it returned with a vengeance. Within one week, 
she was out. When I walked into the ICU to see her, I could hear her moaning from behind her curtain. I walked into her little room there and discovered that my pastor had gotten there before me. And he brought her a banner with this Bible verse on it and he put it up on the wall right across from where she was laying. All things work together for good to those that love God. And as she and I chatted silently, she pointed to that Bible verse on the wall and she told me that she was not worried and she was not afraid because she knew that God was going to heal her because all things work together for good to those who love God. She died two days later. And I didn't have the heart that day, I didn't have the courage that day to tell her that this Bible verse didn't mean what she thought it meant. It didn't mean what she had been led to believe. That this verse is not saying that God is going to work out all of her problems in some temporal sense. That this Bible verse is not teaching us that God will make everything all right on this side of heaven or that God is going to make temporal lemonade out of our earthly lemons. It's not what he's saying. But instead, this verse is pointing to God's eternal resolution to glorify his children with the glory of Jesus Christ. That this Bible verse seeks to direct our attention not toward the temporal triumph of overcoming cancer, but toward the eternal victory of the salvation and the redemption of our bodies. That's what Paul is talking about. And you'll recall from verse 23 that this is what the believer is groaning for, the redemption of our bodies. This is what we've been hoping for, that God would disrobe us of this flawed frame, give us a new body with a new existence. This is the ultimate good that we seek. This is the request that the Holy Spirit is making on our behalf. And we know, Paul says, that God causes all things. Wait a minute. We know that God causes all things. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Does God really cause all things? This is a very challenging, this is a very difficult question to answer. Because if I conclude that yes, God causes all things, then am I saying that God is the cause of sin? If I say that God is the cause of all things, am I saying that God is the cause of sickness and disease? That God is the cause of drought and of poverty? What preacher wants to sign his name to that conclusion? But on the other hand, if I say that God is not the cause of everything, am I then saying that there are some things that are beyond God's control? Am I saying that there are some things that exist that God himself did not create, that God did not ordain? It's a very difficult, a very challenging question. 
And so today I choose to say neither. That's the easy way out. Today I choose to say neither. Instead, I want to read for you what God has said about himself. And in doing so, I invite you to ponder with me of the wonder of the glory and of the unadulterated sovereignty that is Almighty God. Let's read this. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 7. I am the Lord, and there is no one else. There is no God except me. I will arm you though you have not known me. So that people may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no one else. The one forming light and the one creating darkness. The one who causes well-being and the one who creates disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Whoa. And then there was silence. What else could there possibly be? What else can we say when God so plainly, when God so forthrightly tells us of himself? All we can do is to humbly accept his testimony. All we can do is sit to consider what it truly indicates, what it truly means to be God. And Paul himself is going to allude to Isaiah chapter 45 in chapter 9 of Romans to give us further cause to be silent as it pertains to what God does or to what God causes or to what God does not cause or allow. But for a moment, for a moment today, let's suppose that God is the cause of evil. Let's just suppose. If God is the cause of evil, that doesn't mean anybody had to use evil. Even if God made evil, that doesn't mean anyone had to, to use evil. Satan did not have to access evil. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. Adam and Eve did not have to access evil in the garden. But I find it very interesting that God places within the garden this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he explained to them, do not eat from this tree because you can't handle it. You will surely die. But he gave them the choice. He gave them the option. No one has to access evil even if God did make it. This is the same knowledge of good and evil that is available to the angels in heaven. This is the same tree from which Satan himself ate and fell. Mankind also chose to use this tree and because of our choice we too have fallen. Even if God made evil, it doesn't mean that anyone had to use it. And the point is that evil exists. But only one person has the power, only one person has the wisdom and the authority to manage evil. That one person is God. Martin Luther said that even the devil is God's devil. God is in charge of all things. So then, according to Paul, according to Paul, to get back to the scripture, according to Paul, God causes 
all these things to work together. God causes all of these things, the light and the darkness, the good and the evil, to cooperate. And as the only one, as the first mover of all these things, only God has the authority to direct them. Only God can make darkness collaborate with light. Only God can force evil to supply its resources to his greater plan. Only God can do that. Only God can cause all things to work together for good. Only God can cause all things to work for, to contribute toward his grand scheme. Nothing, nothing has the power to resist his will. For it is only by the will of God that anything exists or consists. In the life of the believer, as it is with every human life, there are good things that occur and there are also bad things that befall us. What Paul is saying is that no matter what befalls us, we can rest fully assured that no matter how great, no matter how terrible my situation or my experiences may be, if I am a child of God, those experiences are at the service of God's grander scheme to bring beauty out of ashes and to make something beautiful out of me. All things serve that purpose. What am I saying? I'm saying that your pains and your problems have purpose. That your struggles are a part of God's strategy. That your defeats bring you closer and closer to your eternal destiny. All things work together for good. For who? Well, only to those who love God. Hmm. All things happen to all people. Jesus said the rain falls on the just and on the unjust alike. But because we love God, our response to the rain should not be like the response of the unbeliever. We do not curse the rain. We do not curse the cancer. We do not curse our experiences. We do not curse the rain because the rain and the storm come from the hand of the God that we love. And because we love God, we patiently wait out the storms of life with full confidence that God sent this storm to be a blessing and not to be a curse. We love him. That's what love does, brothers and sisters. Love covers for the one that it loves. Love doesn't make excuses for God. God doesn't need me to make excuses for him. God doesn't need me to explain away his every decision that is not in your favor. But what love does What love does is to always attribute good intentions to God. What love says in the midst of the storms of life is if God sent this calamity into my life, it must be a part of his grand scheme to deliver me from all of my affliction. We always attribute the good to everything that God decides. Love does not judge God. 
Love does not criticize God's decision. The Bible says that love bears all things, the good and the bad. Love believes all things. Love believes the good about God no matter what life experiences may say. And we view God no differently, whether he grants us riches or whether he grants us poverty, whether he gives us sickness or whether he gives us health, we are content, Paul says, in whatever state we find ourselves. Because our state and our status is conferred upon us by the one that we trust the most. And we who love God, we who love the Lord, we will never consider for a moment abandoning him. Though the river runs dry and though the food runs low, though the illness turns for the worse and the pain becomes too much for us to bear, we are committed to the process toward the redemption of our bodies, no matter what the cost. All because we love God. And all because we have been called according to his purpose. All things work together towards God's grand scheme because God has regenerated us for his own ultimate purpose. And now we come to what is considered by many to be the most theologically rich verses in the whole of God's word. In these verses, theologians and laypersons alike find rich spiritual fodder upon which one could masticate for a lifetime and still never fully comprehend. And deep thinkers, deep thinkers love these verses. <laughs> but today the deep thinkers may be disappointed as I attempt to confer some very simple explanations on this text that seem so ripe for vibrant discussion and antagonistic debates. Because in light of all that Paul has said in this book of Romans to this point, I am not so certain that these particular words were meant to confuse or to overextend his audience intellectually. I don't think Paul expected his writing to only be deciphered by PhDs or deep thinkers. I don't believe that Paul thought his audience consisted primarily of scholars. There are five terms Paul uses here, each of which really could be a sermon all by itself, but I have decided to not overcomplicate these terms, but to read them in the context of the book of Romans alone. Those five terms are foreknowledge, predestination, foreknowledge. Those whom God knew before. In other words, all of us who have been called by God, all of us who love God, he knew us all before. That's interesting. <laughs> but how did God know us before we even existed? How? This is a concept that Paul has been subtly developing throughout this book. And it is the concept that I'm going to call the continuum of faith. What I mean by that is simply this, that the faith you and I possess is not something that is new and is not something that is unique to us. But this faith has existed in the world since the dawn of time. It is the faith that is found in Abel, the faith that is found in Methuselah. 
It is the faith that is found in Melchizedek, the faith that is found in Noah. Most importantly, this is the same faith that God found in Abraham, the father of the faith. It is a faith with which God is eternally familiar, brothers and sisters. It is a faith that God knew before I was even born. And when God identifies these seeds of faith in me, God recognizes me as one of his own. Every believer stands on the shoulders of the giants of faith from Genesis to Revelation. There is only one faith, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. There is only one faith. And all of us who have been granted this faith that we first saw in Abel, all of us are of one and the same spiritual fabric from generation to generation. This concept I'm calling the continuum of faith. I'll give you an example. Jesus himself, Jesus himself was, was, was amazed when he came across this kind of faith in the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. You know the story. Jesus, the Canaanite woman came to Jesus looking for a healing. And at first, the text says that Jesus refused to even acknowledge the woman because she wasn't a Jew. And when Jesus finally does answer the woman, this is what he said. Listen, woman, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa. In other words, Jesus saying, woman, I do not recognize you. I do not know you. You are not of the Jewish tradition. I don't know who you are. But then to Jesus' surprise, to Jesus' surprise, the woman responds to him. And she says, yes, Lord. But please help. For even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from their master's table. It was a very humble response, wasn't it? But more than just being humble, it was a response that was filled with a faith that Jesus was familiar with. A faith he had seen before, a faith he had heard before. And he responds and says, Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you desire. Oh, woman, your faith is great. It puts me in the mind of somebody. It reminds me of the faith of Abraham. It reminds me of the faith of David, of the faith of Isaiah. Oh, woman, your faith is great. I remember you. I knew you from before. Your story is their story. And you are part of their family. That's why Paul explains to us in the earlier verse that they are not all Israel who are of Israel, but those who are of faith are the children of Abraham. It is a faith that God has known since the dateless days of eternity. Oh woman, your faith is great. I recognize you. The true Israel consists not of the seed of a man, but of those who possess the seeds of faith that was discovered in Abraham, the faith that God discovered in Abraham. And anyone who has that faith 
has always been known, has always been recognized by God. And if God has known us before, then God has also predestined us to share in that same promise that he gave to Abraham thousands of years ago. It's not a new promise that we have in Jesus Christ. It is the same promise that was given to Abraham. This is the promise that Jesus Christ has fulfilled. And we share therefore in a destiny that was first promised to our spiritual forebears. We are the continuance of a journey toward that same destiny that awaited Abraham and all of the people of faith who've come before us. And that destiny, that destiny, and the good toward which we are headed is to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is the good. This is the blessed outcome for which we yearn and groan. This is the desire of our hearts that only the Holy Spirit can fully express, that we become as Jesus now is, that we share with Jesus Christ in his inheritance. And as we ponder this ultimate good, we come to realize something else. That really, truth be told, we, you and I, we are not the center of God's story of salvation. That comes as a shocker to some people. You're not the center of this story. It's really not all only about you. We come to learn from this text that even our salvation is not for our sakes alone, but that God's scheme, that God's plan while it certainly bestows eternal benefit upon us, his ultimate goal in saving you and me, Paul says, is so that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is the part of the story that predates the book of Genesis. This was God's original intention in creating all of the world, in populating the world with human beings. It is to give his son, Jesus Christ, a kingdom of his own. That is the grander scheme. To give Jesus Christ a people of his own, a people made in his image and made in his likeness. In order to confirm Jesus Christ's eternal preeminence, in order to bestow upon Jesus Christ the title God. Mm -hmm. Book of Hebrews chapter one says this, the father says to his son, your throne, O God, is forever. And the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. This story, the story of your salvation is a part of a much larger story. A story in which we are not the primary characters. A story in which Jesus Christ is all and is in all. And by him, for him, and because of him, all things consist. Hmm. We were foreknown of God, predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And toward that end, we've also been called. 
called to enlist, called to participate in this grand scheme of God, this grand procession of faith that along with God seeks to bring glory to Jesus Christ, his son. This is the grandest portion of God's grand scheme. <clears throat> and so God has called you, God has called me. But we are yet undone. God has called us, but we are unfit to be called the children of God. Because of sin, we are disqualified. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has placed all of our sins upon him, and he has called us righteous. Because the punishment for sin that was ours to bear, he laid it upon his own son, Jesus Christ, and we have been justified through Christ. And today we're called righteous by God. And that in and of itself is a blessing. To be called righteous by God, even though my words and my deeds are not righteous, this is a blessing that I receive from God by faith. I often frustrate my own faith by my actions, but even when my actions disagree with God's determination, I look to Jesus as my Savior. And God counts my faith in his Son as proof of my righteousness and I am justified. I am called righteous though I am not. Not today. But the day is coming. And on that day you and I will be righteous just as Jesus Christ is righteous. On that day you and I will be redeemed and restored. In that day Paul says we will be glorified. <laughs> Which is to be and to become forever like Jesus Christ our Lord. On that day we will be glorified. And that is our final destination. That is the good of which Paul speaks in this text. The day that we will be glorified, the day that we will live forever with Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the ultimate good. And we know that all things, no matter what we're experiencing in this world, rejection or despair, fatigue and anxiety and depression, no matter what we're suffering today, God has so decreed that all of our suffering and all of our struggles will serve his greater purpose. And all things will work together for our good because we love the Lord and we are the called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are always amazed at your wisdom. And as we consider your great love for us, Lord, we thank you for the plan, <clears throat> the plan of salvation. We thank you today, Father God, for loving us for calling us, for giving us an expected end. We thank you, Father God, because we truly believe that all things, both the good and the bad, all things 
are working to bring us ever closer to the glory that you have revealed in your only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Help us today to see the bigger picture. Beyond our pains and beyond our groanings, help us to see the larger story that is being told. Help us to bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ, through our patience and our vigilance, and through our unwavering faith. Father, we love you. We desire to be with you. We desire to see you as you truly are. In our quiet time and in our times of prayer, I pray that you would bring us closer, that you would give us greater vision, and that in your light, we would see the light. We might be transformed from glory to glory and from faith to faith all to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.